everyone. Welcome to episode 43 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We are now officially back from our holiday hiatus. And because we had some technical difficulties last week, we are actually going to bring you an episode today and another one this weekend coming up. So it's exciting. You're going to get to hear a lot from us. We're we're doubling down. Yes. We're going in. Hopefully you like it. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's the most important thing. But we're excited to be back, and we really missed you guys, so we're excited to start recording again. It's kind of weird when we don't do it. We miss it. I know. I felt like a part of me was missing. (coughs) So before we begin with the episode, we wanted to give a shout-out to a few people. We want to give a huge shout-out to Nicole Haydenthaler, now Aiken. Congratulations on your marriage. Congratulations. And Nicole mentioned to us that she and her mowing crew love listening to the podcast while they do their work. And that's honestly the best thing I've ever heard. I love it. I like it a lot. Yes. So we just wanted to say, hey, girls, thank you so much to Mary Tess, Natalie, and Allie. Nicole just wants to let you know that she's so lucky to have you as her bridesmaids. Thanks for listening, guys. That's very cute. Yes. It's very hard to choose bridesmaids, I do have to say. It's also really hard to have friends that close too yeah we had to it took us a while to figure out but every time i have my bridesmaids done john adds another groomsman and i have to like whoops and i'm like oh my god i need another friend sorry (laughs) i'm running out it's (laughs) it's becoming a problem and you will be hearing some amazing new sound clips in the podcast and we just want to credit the incredible artist morgan talbert and big thanks to his girlfriend valerie castro with connecting him to us So thank you guys so much. You're truly so amazing. And we're excited to start bringing this podcast to a different level. And you're helping us do that. So we're so appreciative. So without any further ado, let's get into our episode. Today's episode is going to discuss violence against children. So we do want to give that disclaimer before we begin. We have a very sad story for you today. A terrible series of tragic events are going to bring a young girl's life to an end. This story is sad because it could have been prevented in so many different ways, so many different times. It's a story of cycles of abuse and neglect that travel through generations of families, but it's also a story of failure. Every adult that the young girl this story centers around came into contact with failed her. This is the story of Candace Newmaker. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Candace Tiara Elmore was born on November 19, 1989, in Lincolnton, North Carolina to Angela Maria Elmore. It was a rough delivery. The infant was nine pounds, a large baby for such a tiny, wiry 18-year-old girl herself. Angela said that she had seen the name Candace on TV and that it was the most beautiful name she had ever heard. Angela wanted to do it right this time around. And that doesn't seem like a thought an 18-year-old girl should have. But for Angela, it was. Two years earlier, at 16, She had given birth to a son, but knowing that she couldn't provide for or raise her son right, she gave the boy up for adoption. At the time, she was just a foster child herself. She knew that no one would want a 16-year-old girl and an infant, but they would want an infant, 
a perfect baby boy. So she made the choice to let him go. But now she was 18 years old and out of foster care. So she knew that she had a shot at redemption with Candace. She was going to be a better mother than her own mother had been. Angela was in and out of foster care her entire life. Sometimes her mother would be fit enough to raise her and her siblings, and other times she left the task up to the Lincoln County Department of Social Services. Angela had hated the back-and-forth parenting of her mother, and she vowed to be better for her own child. Angela's mother herself had been orphaned, left with her siblings to fend for themselves in the mountains of West Virginia. Angela had planned this pregnancy. At this point, she had been married for a year to Todd Elmore. She knew the second she saw Todd that he would be her ticket out of the system. He was six years older and a petty criminal, but compared to the backwater town that she lived in that was known for having an active chapter of the KKK in a county that had the only female sheriff in the state, she would take this man who came down from Winston-Salem to steal her away. She knew he was no prince on a white horse. Angela recalled that she didn't love Todd, but he was her way onto better things, a stepping stone. Doesn't really sound like a love story, but I guess for her it was. Yeah, I mean, everyone's uh, version could be a little bit different than what they think. You know, like the outcome is different than what they dream it would be. It definitely isn't going to be a good marriage between Todd and Angela, but I think that she would take anything over being in foster care, which she was in her whole life. And it definitely wasn't a good system. And she talked about being in and out of foster homes and foster parents who would abuse her. So no matter what she was going through with Todd, it was better than her past. Right. And that's what she can compare it to. So that's what Todd was there for. He would get her out of foster care and she would look the other way while he raised hell and committed his crimes. Later, the Lincoln County Sheriff would describe him as unable to make it through the month without lying, stealing, or raising a ruckus. It's really bad when the county knows, like the Sheriff's Department knows you by name. You that's, when, yeah. that's when you have a problem. Yeah, you should never be on a first name basis with them. No. Ever. <laughs> not in a not friendly way. Right. But then people who are obsessed with the police, sometimes serial killers. So. You never know. Yeah. Both ways pretty bad. <laughs> Unfortunately, Todd was aggressive with Angela, too. Not at first, she said, but they never are. And like we said before, it was nothing worse than what she had gotten while she was in the system. So we're seeing the beginning of this cycle of abuse and neglect that we kind of talked about in the intro, where Angela's mother is going to be in foster care, and then she's never taught how to raise children, and she is going to neglect her children and they go into foster care and and now Angela is given birth to her second child and one of them's already in the system so it is pretty sad I mean it's a little different because she did give her baby boy up for adoption versus just giving him to foster care but you never know how that's going to turn out so she's already not on the right path it's true but now here she was 18 with a beautiful baby girl She had everything she'd ever wanted, a chance at being a mother. While she was pregnant, she would listen to classical music and read stories to help soothe the baby. Angela's biggest supporter was the man who finally married her mother, who calmed her down. 
And this man's name is David Davis. He was Candace's step-grandfather. He's actually the one who gave her her middle name, and she called him Pawpaw. I'm sorry, that's something that really bothers John. I saw his face twitch. Yeah, it gets it gets me there. I just I just don't like it. I feel like it should just be grandma and grandpa. But I get, you know, for some families it's a little bit more complex it's than that. It's a cultural thing sometimes. Yeah, totally, totally. But for me, it's grandpa and grand, you know, grandma and grandpa. And that is all. <laughs> I never want to be called pop pop, paw paw, whatever the hell, poo poo, whatever whatever else there is. There's some weird ones I out don't there, want I will it. say. <laughs> but anyway. Well, Candace and Pawpaw were instantly each other's favorites. She often crawled up on his lap, and he would read her the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Angela and Todd would have two more children following Candace. In February of 1991, they had Chelsea, and in October of 1992, they had Michael. The couple rarely ever worked. Angela tried beauty school, but it was difficult to keep up with three kids and a demanding husband who never wanted her to work. Angela also tried a fast food restaurant and a nursing home, but they were all really hard to keep down. In a constant, desperate search for work, the family of five crisscrossed across Lincoln County trailer parks, run-down apartments, and housing projects. They pawned everything they owned, meaning the children often went without. Without food, without clean diapers, and without a proper diet. Although Angela's mother and new stepfather said that the children were always fed, clothed, and loved, police records tell a different story. Deputies frequently responded to domestic disturbance calls, wherever the Elmores were staying. All records of the Elmores' abuses against his wife were hard to track down because Lincoln County destroys all records after 20 years. He was charged with assault once, but because Angela did not show up in court to testify against him, the charges were dropped. That's convenient. Yeah. And, you know, like they always say, if there's one arrest, it's probably been done several other times. So this abuse is a continual thing that's happening. Whatever the living situation was, it was bad enough for Angela in 1992 to pack up her three children, her youngest only being a few months old. They were going to leave Todd. When they left, they stayed for a few months at a battered woman's shelter. It was here that Candace celebrated her third birthday. There are pictures of her blowing out candles on a cake decorated with those wild troll dolls. You know, the ones with the gems in their belly button? With yes. The different colored hair. I remember those. I like those. It was said by Angela's mother and stepfather that even at the age of three, Candace had a strong personality. She had to. She helped her mother take care of her siblings. She was also very protective of her mother and often tried to get in the way of the beatings her father would dole out. It was also because of this that she was wildly protective and was known to sometimes have a violent temper. It's always unfortunate, but it seems like when children grow up in abusive homes or they have neglectful parents or parents who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, that they always have to grow up a little bit faster. They always seem to be a little bit more mature. And I, this is the way everyone described Candace while she was living with her mother. True. And I'm sure, I mean, not for Candace, but I just know in general, it also, uh, they have a tendency not to be able to cope with things that happen sometimes. 
Right. Or they have to overcompensate. Right. Especially when they, they're the oldest or they have younger siblings. Right, right. So it depends on how it goes and what the situation is and how old the child is. Eventually, Todd found his wife. And the couple decided to try and make things work. Angela didn't know it then, but this would be the undoing of her dream and the continuation of her cycle. First, Angela was late several times picking up the children from their Head Start program. Now, for those of you who don't know, Head Start is a government-assisted child care for people who can't afford child care while they're looking for jobs or they're trying or they're working. Um, They're very... I mean, they're helpful, but they're very under underfunded. I worked at a Head Start for a year, and it was, it was just a really, it was a sad place to be. It's the best way I can describe it. Then there were the police reports. Neighbors called social services because the children were seen running around the trailer park without shoes, looking visibly dirty. The middle child, Chelsea, also had clear lash marks across her back, which were easily seen as she did not have on a shirt during the winter. Well, it goes against everything that they said, that they were properly fed and clothed and, and loved. loved. Yeah. <laughs> Stretching the truth for her daughter a little bit there. It's really sad because the neighbor is going to report seeing Chelsea running around, dirty, barefoot, no shirt on, and it looked, the way it was described in the police report, was switch marks on the girl's back. Oh, wow. So I guess it was a discipline thing. So obviously the children didn't have a good time with Todd. So because of these incidents, social services deemed Angela and Todd unfit and their three children were removed from their care. However, Angela and Todd weren't going to let their children be taken away that easily. When authorities went to the trailer, the family had left. It took a month to track them down. In a dramatic scene, authorities found the family and had to physically remove the children from the arms of Angela. And just like that, Candace, at five years old, as her mother and grandmother had been before her, was a ward of the county. But unlike her mother and grandmother before her, Candace, with her beautiful blue eyes, lightly freckled face, and great big grinning smile, was adopted. On June 14, 1996, Candace Tiara Elmore became Candace Elizabeth Newmaker, as her new mother's name was Jean Newmaker. She chose to give her new daughter her own middle name, almost as if to rechristen her. The exact records regarding the adoption are sealed, as North Carolina has one of the strictest adoption secrecy laws in the country. The only thing that is known about the adoption is that it took a year to be finalized, which really shows that they tried to do a lot of checkups and make sure that Jean Newmaker was suitable to adopt a girl. Well, at least, like, they did their due diligence. Yes, You know, that makes me at least a little happy here. (laughs) Yeah, the only thing I could see being a little bit maybe questionable or controversial during the time, because it is 1996, was that... Jean Newmaker is a single woman. Wow. Okay. So I'm sure the investigation was into her finances was probably a little bit more serious because they needed to know that this woman would be able to support herself and a child. Right. So I'm sure that's why it took a, a while. We couldn't find out too much about Jean Newmaker, but 
here's what we could. Jean grew up with two sisters in an upper middle class neighborhood. Her parents were wealthy as a result of a family furniture business and often helped with charity. Her parents seemed to have a good marriage until her uncle, her father's brother, is going to get into a car crash and he passes away. After this, it seems like her father's drinking is going to get a little out of hand and it seems to get worse and worse as the years go on. So as Jean worked hard through high school, getting A's and joining numerous clubs, her father seems to be working hard getting DUIs. The same behavior continued while she was away at college, getting her undergraduate degree. However, when Jean went to graduate school for nursing at the University of Virginia, her father was forced to enter a rehab program because of one too many DUIs. It was at this rehab center that he met a woman and began an affair, eventually causing him to divorce his wife. At this point, Jean, 28, moved out and begins working as a nurse practitioner at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. She specializes in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition. Her mother and father are going to die of cancer in 1996 and 1997, respectively. Using money from her inheritance from her grandfather and the passing of her parents, Jean was able to buy a sprawling five-bedroom brick colonial house on a corner lot in Durham. It was to that home on Georgia Avenue that Candace was now going to live. So I think it's pretty interesting because here we have two girls to one woman, one girl. And even though they lived completely different lives, Candace had a pretty traumatic upbringing with her mother and her father. And even though you could say Jean lived a privileged life because her family was wealthy, they both, I think, are dealing with abandonment issues. Well, they definitely, I feel like Jean can definitely relate to turmoil in a family. You know, like her father was an alcoholic. Yeah. You know, so maybe like, you know, that's a way of them kind of being on the same page in Connecting. a way. as like a way to connect. You know, you have kind of a little bit of turmoil in the family and right. your upbringing might not be so perfect. And maybe in Jean's case, you could you could make the argument maybe that like to the outside, to everyone else, their family was like so perfect and like up this upscale neighborhood. But really internally, maybe it was more chaotic. Right. Like what's happening behind like, mansion exactly. walls. Almost like it would be like Candace on the inside. Like what she dealt with. Correct. Sort of. Because I think that her father turning to alcohol in a way is he's abandoning his family, especially with all the DUIs and having to go to the rehab and then picking a whole nother wife and then leaving and going to be with her and starting another family. Right. He completely abandoned them. So Candace is probably feeling the same way that, you know, it's confusing when you're at that age because when she gets adopted, she's seven, eight. You don't understand what happened. And I think that the two girls, women, might feel, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Was I not a good enough daughter? Did I not do everything right? So the two have a possibility of really bonding and understanding each other. Yeah, totally. And you know what? It kind of brings up the point where, like, well, this is my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. I feel like no matter if you're 28 or 8, 
there's a your father leaving and your parents. Yeah, you don't know how to deal with. I feel like whether you're 28 or eight, you still have hard uh, a hard like you can't like comprehend exactly what's going on and how did this come to be. So like I could you know yeah nobody nobody likes to be left no and that's what happened to both of them right. So in order to bond with her new adopted daughter and make her feel more at home, Jean is going to take two months off from work. The parents of the children, who Candace would eventually make friends with, will say that Jean, over the next year, will become only what they can describe as Supermom. She wanted to give Candace every opportunity possible. She sent the seven-year-old girl to Eastleigh Elementary School, which is an expensive private school in the area. Candace was apprehensive about letting people in. The teacher who taught her in first grade said that she was shy, but liked helping the children that needed help. For example, there was a student in the room who was wheelchair-bound, and Candace enjoyed helping get things for the girl and helping wheel her around the school. I think that is the nurturing aspect of Candace that really came out when she had to take care of her two younger siblings. So she's a caregiver type. That's her personality. Jean also enrolled Candace in equestrian classes when she was in second grade as she showed an interest in animals. She also allowed the girl to take in any stray animal that she wanted. By third grade, Candace was settling nicely into the school. She had a good group of girlfriends who she had slumber parties with all the time. And she enjoyed arts and crafts and loved making beaded keychains. So if you think it's like, this world, it's it's so different. It's the opposite of the way she grew up. Oh, definitely. I mean, she, uh, she would have never been able... Candace would have never been able to um, have experience these any of these things, unfortunately, you know, in her past, yeah. you know, family exactly. life. Yeah. But Jean also enrolled Candace in gymnastics, swimming, and ballet. She was baptized and received communion. Everyone in the neighborhood commented on how grown up, polite, and mature Candace seemed to be. The only trouble she ever really had in school was when she won the student of the week and she had to make a poster about whatever she wanted because it was going to be displayed within the school. When the little girl revealed her poster with pictures of Chelsea and Michael, all the kids teased her because she was lying. She didn't have any siblings. And then when she told them that she was adopted, they teased her even more. And this was a problem that lasted only briefly, as teachers and her friends quickly came to her defense. Despite the support, the new toys, and all the classes Candace was attending, she still had a heavy heart about her past. Her friend recalled her saying that she knew her mother didn't want her anymore, and that Jean was now her new mother, because she's the only one who wants her. I think it's a weird way to explain that to a child. Or maybe that's something that she internalized. It wasn't clear whether or not Jean explained it to her this way, which I hope she didn't, or that's how she took it. It could have been both. Like, it's probably a mix mix of both. Or maybe she heard that from somewhere else and kind of adapted it to her own. Yeah, maybe overheard a conversation. Exactly. That was always my favorite thing to do. To like, my parents, yeah, my parents had friends over. I'd like, go to bed and then i would just like stay up and listen to them like around the corner really in the hallway see yeah. i remember being a kid at that age and i used to want to be in the circle of like all my mom and dad's friends well talking. yeah so did i but they I, would tell yeah. me to go to bed eventually because yeah <laughs> they wanted to like really have beer not just casually <laughs> drink it <laughs> so although things appeared to be perfect on the surface 
they weren't as they seem inside the large home on Georgia Avenue. Now, this is kind of, it's so funny because there's so many cycles happening here. And that's why I really mentioned it in the intro because you have a cycle of neglect and abuse that happened with Angela's mother, with Angela herself, and then with Angela's children. But you're also seeing a cycle happen with Jean. Whereas in her life, her life looked perfect, but there was problems with her father's drinking and, you know, eventually he left the family. And it's so funny because that's the life that Jean has now created with Candace, where on the outside, she looks like super mom and Candace is mature and, and everyone loves everybody. And that's the way it's being portrayed. Right. But that wasn't the reality. And we know that because of all the doctors that Jean is going to take Candace to. Jean looked like she had it all under control, but she didn't. Realizing that this adoption was maybe more work than she thought it was going to be. She was a full-time nurse, and she was in her early 40s. So it is kind of exhausting to have such a young girl in your early 40s, especially being a single parent. The demands of Candace were beginning to weigh on her. She made appointments for Candace to see specialists for ADHD and behavior therapy with colleagues at Duke. From the reports given by the doctors, it didn't appear that Candace had behavior disorder or ADHD, but rather that she was a damaged child. She had a lot of physical and emotional baggage because of her childhood. To Jean, this may seem like overactive behavior, but in reality it was normal behavior for a 10-year-old girl who had some serious emotional scars. Jean also did not like the fact that Candace chose when to be loving with her and when not to be. Jean described this as Candace using her love as a weapon against her. And that's one of the first problems is thinking that the girl's doing this maliciously. Like Candace's actions from an outside perspective and from all the paperwork that I've read from her doctors has been diagnosed as typical behavior of a 10-year-old girl, especially one who like we said before, has emotional scars. But Jean interpreted it as being malicious and there was like intent behind it. Whereas in reality, a 10-year-old girl isn't having that thought process. But Jean thought Candace was calculating. Right. And I get that. I think, is it safe to just say Jean should have known the risks of adoption, especially at that age, and that there are possibilities of a backfire at times it's and not becoming, like, nothing's going to be perfect i mean even no. even when it's your biological kid nothing's perfect right. so i think that like she really should have understood that and you would think because she's kind of in the medical field that it might give her an, an up a little bit on it yeah but maybe especially, not i don't know you're right especially because she worked with pediatrics right exactly like she's so around she, children yeah um i know it's gastroenterology but still you're still around children well she's used to working with children who obviously if she's going into that field have chronic pain right i just kind of wanted to make a note of that because yeah. to me that's just so bizarre i mean you know the risks so right. i just you know i don't know so it seems that over time the household became a battle of wills between the two one of the behaviorists that Jean took Candace to had this to say about the girl. The child had been through a lot. I don't think she was a normal, happy kid. She could be real cute, and then she could be mean. That describes every, like, almost teenage girl in the world, I'm just saying. True. It was like having an average 18-year-old adolescent in your home. She tries hard in school and seems to be invested in herself. She is stingy with affection. She gives it and takes it away. 
In my opinion, it is her defense mechanism for being through so many placements and facing abandonment. Now that sounds like a realistic diagnosis from a behaviorist. That's something that seems to be logical and makes sense. And when there is something like that, it seems like the best thing you can give the child is space, time, and love, right? Understand that it's a process. Yeah, emphasize patience. Yeah. To Jean, this wasn't enough. She continued to take her 10-year-old daughter to doctors, getting numerous diagnoses and an assortment of mood-altering drugs that included antidepressants, antipsychotic, and amphetamines for her attention deficit disorder. None of this seemed to work for Jean. Now, I feel like I just want to, like, intervene here. I think that putting a 10-year-old girl on these heavy drugs is going to have a profound effect on her personality and who she is. I also don't think that she should be put on drugs if she if she had been tested for behavior disorders and ADHD and ADD and it all came back negative. I I don't think that she should be on drugs for this. Well, I I don't know this like to be the truth, but I guess I hate using the word, but I would assume because she was a nurse and maybe she had friends, maybe No, or what so happened she, was oh, okay. No, because that would be so illegal. Well, I was gonna, well, that's why I was kind of going with this. No, like, it, could she have gotten the drugs without it being like a legitimate diagnosis? What it seemed to be was that she took Candace to all of these different doctors until she found the doctor that was going to prescribe the medication for her. I mean, yeah. And there I, are doctors yeah. out there that will do that. So that's very unfortunate. But even though she was taking all these mood-altering drugs, none of this seemed to work for Jean. And I feel like here the relationship was wasn't going as easy as she thought it would, you know, and being a mother was a little bit more than she bargained for, her being in her 40s. And because of this, Jean continually is going to be searching for new answers. And through her searching, she is eventually going to find the answer she was looking for. It was called Reactive Attachment Disorder, or RAD. It's this disorder that became a new buzzword that was passed around adoption circles in the 80s and 90s. The term was created to describe a child's inability to bond with their new parents. Of course, the concept of this had been around for a long time, as it was labeled RAD in the late 80s. But Jean is going to throw herself into this concept, and she attends several attachment disorder workshops, and she even joins a group called the Association for the Treatment and Training in the Attachment of Children, and the acronym for this is ATTACH. It's a little weird. Um, She attends the National Conference for the Group in Alexandria, Virginia in 1999, and it was here that she met therapist Bill Goebel, who is going to ask her to fill out an inventory sheet of Candace's behavior. And after reading the inventory sheet, Goebel, without ever meeting this girl, states that Candace, without a doubt, suffers from attachment disorder and that her case seems fairly severe. In looking at this piece of paper that was filled out from like a a teaching standpoint that if anything, Candace might have had something we call oppositional defiance disorder which doesn't mean necessarily that you have a child who is going to become an adult who's defiant, but just the fact that there's children out there that have problems with authority and 
instead of listen to what adults have to say, they question it. And sometimes they can become aggressive, but there's different tactics and different ways to deal with these children. And there are coping mechanisms that you can teach that eventually they can overcome this disorder. And it seems like that's more what Candace had than this reactive attachment disorder, especially a severe case of it. I think that was a little egregious for a doctor to say, especially never meeting a girl. Well, remember that they're trying to hook, line, and sinker yeah. uh, this, you know, this mother to bring their child in. I mean, that's really, really what it is. No, it is what it is because this was without a doubt a way to get her to spend more money. Absolutely. I mean, she already was going through so many doctors. I mean, this was just another way to... Another one. Yeah. It was Goebbels who would suggest Connell Watkins in Colorado. Watkins was an unlicensed psychotherapist. She, along with her mother, Dr. Foster Klein, was Colorado's pioneer in attachment disorder. According to Klein's theory, the gospel for the attachment therapists, the disorder can be traced to infancy. Everything is a crisis. Hunger, pain a wet diaper. If your parents did not respond to those needs, the chunk of your brain that tells you to trust people closes and never develops. These infants grow into cunning, dangerous children, Klein states. Some lie about everything and seem to have no conscience. It's a kind of crazy thing to say about children. True. But that's what they're... They're believing. Yes. Yes. And then I think that it's... This is a great discovery for Jean because now she has been looking for a doctor to tell her over and over again, you're a great mother. It's not you. It's all her. And this RAD is putting all of the onus on Candace. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, all the weight is on the little girl. Yeah. And no longer on Jean. So it's, uh, it's so crazy what people do. So Klein believes that the best therapy involves turning back the clock, right? If the problem started in infancy, we got to go back to infancy. And recreating what the child missed as an infant. Therapies that restrict movement and force the child to surrender control come into play. During this holding therapy, a child lies across the lap of parents or therapists or both. Often the child's arm and legs are restrained. If he or she flies into a rage... The parent or therapist tightens their grip. The goal is to show the child that someone can control them and that they can feel safe at the same time. The technique is not pretty to watch, states Klein, just like heart surgery isn't. And that is the understatement of this episode because watching a holding therapy is hard to do. Yeah, it's more like child torture. Yeah, I mean, it's it not it's it's not what it's cracked up to be. At least what they were trying to sell at this moment, yeah. at, you know, at that moment in time, completely different. Yeah, I agree. It was it's hard to watch. The, I mean, if you are interested in seeing it, I don't know if you are, but they have videos on YouTube of this holding therapy, and it is it's sick. It's hard to watch. Yeah, and we've watched some pretty gross stuff. Yeah, so this was rough. There are parents who swear by the holding therapies and Klein's work describing it as a miracle that they had prayed for. But some mainstream child psychologists and pediatricians are alarmed by the escalating use of attachment diagnosis. They say it gives false hope to parents. 
and holding therapies may further damage already troubled children. It is something that has not been extensively researched, and the information regarding the disorder comes largely from anecdotes rather than systematic studies. So what's happening is people just saying, oh, it worked, but they're not questioning the children, and there's no studies over time, and there's no, there's nothing medical happening here. And the children at this point, I mean, it's going to go one way or the other. If a child truly does have oppositional defiant disorder, which seems to be the thing most, this uh, symptoms most closely related to RAD, then the holding therapy is going to make them more distrustful of authority and make the situation worse. Or if you have a child who there really is no issue with, except for them having a hard time relating to their parents, of course they're going to be scared into submission because they want whatever happening around them to stop. So of course it looks like they're submitting to their parents. They just want the abuse to end. It's true. So that's why yeah. they're getting the results they're getting. Yeah, there's no like scientific evidence to say, oh, this definitely yeah. 100% works and everyone should... I think, you know, freaking do it. Yeah, I think the only thing that's happening is that the kids are scared. Yeah. And they want it to end. And they probably are scared that way. And if it does last over time, they're probably like, well, I don't want this shit to happen again. Right. And have to go through this exactly. again. And children are smart that way and knowing this is what I'm supposed to say and this is what I'm supposed to do in order to preserve themselves. Right. In any case, teachers, neighbors, and other adults who knew Candace insist her public behavior was nowhere near the extremes associated with attachment disorder. It is important to note that reactive attachment disorder is a real condition. However, it's very rare. It is an emotional dysfunction in which a baby or child cannot form a bond with its parent or caregiver due to early neglect or mistreatment. The symptoms of RAD can mimic other conditions, so it's important to have the affected child evaluated by a licensed, underlined italic bold, specialist in order to get the correct diagnosis and treatment. Without treatment, RAD may persist for years and may have a permanent effect on the child's emotional development and adult relationships. However, in most cases with treatment, RAD is something that dissipates over time. And that's been said in every everything I looked up about RAD. They said it's something that will go away over time with therapy. That's all. Right. Once again, patience. <laughs> yes, and it love. It takes patience. Right. The symptoms for this disorder include children that appear sad, fearful, irritable, and listless and don't respond to being picked up or comforted. They withdraw emotionally and are weary and watchful of other people because they lack trust and expect hostility or rejection. Children with RAD show no interest in playing games, interacting with their peers, or engaging in any type of social interaction. Now that doesn't sound like Candace at all, especially when it comes to the relationship she has at school with her friends, with her teachers, and with the animals that she likes helping, and all the classes she takes. So it's a little interesting. These children may have multiple disorders, display problem behaviors due to anger and control issues, severe anxiety, safety issues, and very poor self-esteem. They may also experience developmental delays and have lower than average IQs. As for Candace's teachers and friends, none of this was the case. However, despite this all, Jean chose to move forward with this, what is supposed to be, revolutionary rebirthing therapy. 
On January 20th, 2000, she signed a contract with Connell Watkins and the attachment center at Evergreen. It stated that for $7,000, she would get to experience with her daughter a two-week rebirthing therapy session. What appealed most about the process to Jean was that she would be allowed to stay at the private home of one of Watkins' assistants for two weeks. Later, when Jean reflects on this time, she says that she is relieved because she was so frustrated and emotionally exhausted trying to deal with Candace. She said at this point the girl had become assaultive at home, but did not get into specifics. The only specific detail that I could find of Candace being aggressive at home was there was a small fire that Jean claimed Candace had started in an attempt to burn down the house. But I, there was no, there's no other information supporting it or story from Jean. Like she never goes into specifics about Candace's behavior. So it's, it's hard to judge the way the girl really was. That's true. I mean, for all you know, that could have been an accident. Right. I mean, and for no, all we know, no she could evidence. be problem child. Right. I don't know. Maybe. It's, I don't know because there's no details that Jean gets. Right. And if she's not going to go into detail, then, uh, then I, it's what it is. We can only I mean, assume. He said, she said. In preparation for this two-week treatment, Jean was told by one of the doctors, who also worked at the attachment center at Evergreen, that she should stop giving Candace certain medications. Weeks before the two were to head out to Colorado, she had taken the girl off of Dexedrine, which is an amphetamine used for treatment of ADD. She also stopped giving her daughter a Fexor, which is an antidepressant. I would like to note that suddenly stopping these drugs could result in the following withdrawal symptoms. Anxiety, depression, irritability, low energy levels, fatigue, agitation, sleep disturbances, extreme hunger and thirst, chills, strange dreams, which Candace does have, lack of interest, muscle aches, drug cravings, psychotic symptoms like paranoia, and hallucinations. Now, I do not know if this was the intention of the treatment center, but if Candace did not show symptoms of RAD before stopping her medication, she surely would in the two weeks following her stopping the medication. Every withdrawal symptom reflects the symptoms of RAD. So was this done on purpose to have Candace's behavior change because of her withdrawal symptoms, cutting cold turkey, because now it's going to look like she has RAD. Every withdrawal symptom, which, and she does talk, she complains about suffering from a lot of them, makes her look like she has RAD. You know, I never looked at it from that angle. And I think you're, I want to say you're right. I mean, I mean, I like when you say that, say that again. (laughs) I think you might be right. I like it. (laughs) I mean, only because... They are trying to pitch this breakthrough Therapy. treatment, mm-hmm. uh, and oh, we need seven thousand dollars. Trust me, your your daughter needs it, and you know all these things. I would, I would say, yeah, because now, oh, she look at the symptoms, don't guys? And don't now you look see at it? her. Yeah, oh, she's mm-hmm. fixed. The two weeks are over. Look, isn't that pretty interesting? Yeah, because if you think about it, I mean, you probably detox off those in a couple of days. A week or two, maybe. Who knows? Right. Maybe shorter than that. And then they would probably say, oh, my God, look, it didn't even take two weeks of therapy. She's done in five days, let's just say. 
If the girl's detox, it's pretty much a detox. It's like when you take a, a drug addict or, or, or an alcoholic to rehab. Yeah. It's literally like the same thing. They're having it's, symptoms. They're, it's pretty crazy. It's crazy. I know. Yeah. So when Candace and Jean arrive at the designated home of Britta St. Clair, who is actually the office manager of Watkins, Britta is going to introduce them to her fiancé, Jack McDaniel, who has the task of writing down everything about Candace's two-week stay in exchange for $700 from Watkins. Candace was instructed to call him Daddy Jack since he'd always be around. Weird. Right then, I'd be like, we're not going to stay here for two weeks. Daddy Jack. Unreal. Weird. Gross. It appeared that Daddy Jack had no medical training whatsoever, but he still was given the task of recording everything that happened with the two women and all the time they spent with Watkins and Julie Ponder, who's going to be the second therapist from Evergreen that was going to look over this procedure. And Ponder is actually the only therapist during these whole two weeks that's going to have a medical license that's going to see Candace. But she really only received it 10 months prior to this. Talk about sketchy. (laughs) Someone didn't do their research here. Especially being a nurse, it's pretty interesting. It was clear that those providing care for the girl were modifying her medication in order to manipulate her state. About one week into the intensive therapy program, Jean and Candace were led through something called compression therapy. It's like another form of that holding therapy we talked about before. This is where Candace would lie on the floor, swaddled tightly in a sheet, with only her head exposed. She was then laid on the floor. Two cushions were placed on either side of her hips. Jean was instructed to lie across the young girl's body, forming a cross, with her head on one pillow and her upper thighs on another. The goal of this type of therapy is control. They wanted Candace to be compliant to Jean and for Jean to be in charge. This is a very aggressive therapy. The entire weight of Jean's 195-pound body is now across the chest of the 10-year-old girl as her daughter was struggling to breathe for the three-hour session. Watkins instructed Jean to yell at Candace and tell her that she would not live with her anymore if she kept acting the way she was. When Candace would scream out in pain, Watkins and her mother would yell more. In another compression therapy session that Watkins had a few weeks prior to this with another patient, whom she also wrapped in a blanket, the same way Candace had been, she is going to do the same thing. She calls the boy stupid and tells the mother to yell at him. But this mother is going to react a little differently than Jean. Jean actually goes through the three-hour session yelling at Candace. But this mother um, didn't want to do it anymore because her son had actually wet his pants. And uh, wow, she got up and like took her son out of the room. But this is a traumatic event because as the woman's trying to get up off of her son, who has now wet his pants, uh, Watkins kept pushing the mother further down on her son. The woman leaves, but Jean is actually participating in this. So, and they do say in all of the documents about RAD, like during compression or holding therapy or the rebirthing sessions, that it is very common for the children to go to the bathroom. 
it's it's sad because it's either the children are scared or there's so much pressure on their bodies that they can't contain themselves. Like, yeah, I mean, they, so sad. It's crazy. They can't do anything. They can't move. Yeah. So in this session, after the three hours are going to continue, Candace eventually realizes that it just got worse the more she fought. So she chose eventually to be compliant. And earlier in the week, she was forced to get her hair cut because it would be easier for her mother to maintain. That was why she got her hair cut. And the woman who cut her hair told her that if she didn't behave, she would come back, shave it all off, and put a tattoo on her head. It's a horrible thing to say to a 10-year-old girl. That's traumatizing. Good job. Yeah. I mean, come on now. So I'm sure at this point, Candace was just terrified of what her adoptive mother was going to allow them to do. So like Watkins wanted, she complied. And after three hours of labored breathing, Jean was instructed to get off of her daughter. Jean was then instructed to sit in a nearby chair. Watkins then told the 10-year-old girl to crawl to her mother and get in her arms like a baby. Jean was then told to cradle Candace and feed her from a nearby plate. Candace did as she was told. And as her daughter looked into her eyes, waiting for her to pick her up, Jean began to sob uncontrollably, saying over and over again, the child has finally connected with me. And at this point, Candace is terrified, and Jean's thinking this is working. So it's just a bad combination. Right. I mean, that means that there's no line in the sand for for Jean. You know, like, she feels like, oh, this is working, let me keep it up. Right, she's thinking... there's There's no end. Right, I basically just did what I did to this girl for three hours, and now we've connected, so she's giving everything up to these therapists. As their two-week stay was coming to a close, the mother and daughter pair now had to go through the final stage of therapy, the rebirthing ceremony. Therapist Julie Ponder is going to lead the session, but she was watched on by many. Watkins is there, as is Britta St. Clair and Daddy Jack, Now, the video on this session has never been shown to the public, but based on court documents, it has been transcribed. So I'm going to explain to you what the video shows, and I'm going to read to you the transcript. And it does get graphic, and it does get emotional. When the video begins, Ponder is questioning Candace about why she's yawning so much. She explains that she had another nightmare last night. In this one, her birth mother dropped her out of a two-story window and she died. Ponder then tells her that her new mother loves her, and if she wants to be safe and not fall out of a window, she should be reborn to her new mother. That's kind of just a side note, that weird dreams, that's one of the symptoms of withdrawal. So it's here that Ponder is going to ask her, Would you like to do that, Candace? In reference to being reborn to her new mother. Candace agrees that she would. Candace, dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, is then asked to take her shoes off and sit on a padding that they have set up on the floor. Ponder tells Candace that being a baby is hard, and this process is going to be hard, and she will be squeezed, and she will kick, and cry, but that's okay, because that's how babies are born. Ponder then tells Candace that the sheet will be wrapped around her to represent the womb, 
and it will be really tight, so she'll have to wriggle her way out so that she can be reborn. The 10-year-old girl then stands up on a queen-size blue flannel sheet. The 10-year-old girl then stands up as a queen-size blue flannel sheet is laid down on the floor. Once this is complete, Candace lies down in a fetal position in the center of the sheet. Ponder gathers all four corners of the sheet and brings them above the girl's head. She begins twisting the ends of the sheet that she has in her hands tighter and tighter. The girl becomes completely enveloped. This is when Connell Watkins enters the room with Jean Newmaker. She props up four pillows over Candace's body and by her side. Jack McDaniel and Britta St. Clair enter the room. With St. Clair's adult adopted daughter, who is mentally and physically handicapped and wheelchair-bound. It is never explained why, but the woman is wheeled into the corner and watches the entire event. Which I think is... This transcript and video... The video must be horrific because the transcription is terrifying and traumatizing. But the fact that they had a mentally and physically handicapped person who cannot leave the room watch this event is abuse. Is horrible. Oh yeah, it's definitely abuse. I, I don't know and they it's never explained why. Um the only thing I could think of is that they want to show the person, the the woman this could happen to you. I don't know. I don't know why they brought her in there. It's so Me weird. Neither. And nothing else is mentioned about it. But it just it's weird because everything they've done so far is not ethical. Think about it. Right. They also Good they point. also have Gene like living for those two weeks with a staff member. That's not in licensed. their house. That's not licensed. Yeah. The whole thing is just You're like why didn't bizarre. she stay at the center? I right. don't get it. The whole that whole thing just makes my stomach. It's off. It's really off. Right. So Watkins sits at Candace's feet, and St. Clair leans her back against the girl's knees. McDaniel lies next to St. Clair on top of the 70-pound little girl. Ponder is holding the ends of the sheet tightly closed in her left hand, and Jean was instructed to sit near Ponder so that when Candace emerges, she will see her first. The four adults with a combined weight of 673 pounds, then begin pushing down on the girl. I am now going to read the transcript from the court documents of what took place over the next 70 minutes. Ponder. So imagine yourself as a teeny little baby inside of your mother's womb and what it felt like. Warm. It felt tight because... Her stomach was all around you. A minute and a half passes. Ponder says again, What do you think you thought about when you were in there? Candace's response is, I thought I was going to die. You thought you were going to die in there? Ponder asks. Yeah. Jean Newmaker then chimes in. I'm so excited. I'm going to have a brand new baby. I hope it's a girl. I'm going to love her. I'm going to hold her and tell her stories. I'm going to keep her very safe. Every day we'll be together and she'll be with me forever. Candace is then asked if she believes what her mother is saying. 
Uh huh. She responds. She's then asked how it makes her feel. Happy, she says. Watkins then says to the girl, If the baby doesn't decide to be born, she will die. When the baby decides to be born, it's a wonderful thing. So, little baby, are you ready to be reborn? Candace responds, yes. Ponder tells her to come out head first. You have to push really hard with your feet. If you stay in there, you're going to die and your mommy's going to die. At 8 minutes and 42 seconds, Candace says, Who's sitting on me? I can't do it. A few seconds later, I can't do it. She's crying now. Do my hands come out first? Watkins then says, Sometimes it takes 18 hours to be born. Candace responds with a scream. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. At 10 minutes and 16 seconds, Candace says, Whoever is pushing on my head, it's not helping. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't breathe. It's too dark under here. Please quit pushing on my head. I can't do it. Somebody's sitting on top of me. A minute later, she begins to moan. Someone's on top of me. Where am I supposed to come out? Right here, where my finger is? I can't do it. A minute later, she screams. I'm going to die. Ponder then tells her, Do you want to be reborn, or do you want to stay in there and die? The girl responds, Quit pushing on me, please. Quit squishing my legs. I'm going to die now. Do you want to die? Ponder asks. No, but I'm about to. Please, please, I can't breathe. I can't do it anymore. A minute later. Please quit pushing on me. Another minute later. I need some help. Help. Please help me. Watkins. Are you feeling the contractions, Mom? Newmaker responds, I am. At 13 minutes and 43 seconds. Candace asks again, Where am I to go? Right here? Right here? Am I supposed to go right here? Please, please. Then the girl begins to scream. Okay, I'm dying. Okay, I'm dying. I'm sorry. 30 seconds later. Okay, I'm dying. 18 seconds after that. I'm going to die. A minute after that. I want to die. Another 30 seconds passes. Can you let me have some oxygen? You mean like for real you want me to die for real? Ponder responds, "Uh uh-huh. Like die right now and go to heaven, Candace says. And Ponder says, go ahead and die right now. For real, for real. Okay, I'm dead, Candace says. Watkins then tells the girl, it's not easy to live. You have to be really strong to live a life, a human life. At 17 minutes and 7 seconds, Candace, now breathing extremely heavily, says, Get off. I'm sick. I'm sick. Where am I supposed to come out? Where? But how can I get there? Walken says, Just go ahead and die. It's easier. It takes a lot of courage to be born. 
At 18 minutes and 26 seconds, Candace says, You said you would give me oxygen. You gotta fight for it, Watkins says. And at 20 minutes, Candace throws up. Okay, I'm throwing up. I just threw up. Again, she vomits. I gotta poop. I gotta poop. I'm gonna go in my pants. Go ahead, Ponder says. Stay in there with the poop and vomit. At 23 minutes, help, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, it's hot, I can't breathe. Jean Newmaker says, so excited to have this baby, I'm waiting for you, to love you and to hold you. Ponder says, scream, Candace. No, the girl replies. Jean says to her daughter, baby, I love you already. I'll hold you and love you and keep you safe forever. Don't give up on your life before you have it. At 32 minutes and 25 seconds, Jack McDaniel repositions himself on a pillow over Candace's head. All adults, except for Jean Newmaker, are out of breath from pushing down on Candace so hard. Ponder says, Candace? No response. She takes another pillow from Jean Newmaker. She needs more pressure over here, so she can't so she really needs to fight. Watkins then says, it's getting pretty tight in here. Yep, says Ponder, less and less air all the time. Again, Ponder and McDaniels reposition themselves. Ponder, she gets to be stuck in her own puke and poop. Uh Uh-huh, it's her own life, quitter. And her last words on the videotape. Candace responds to Watkins calling her a quitter. At 40 minutes and one second, she says no. McDaniel then says, Mama got you this far, now it's up to you. Watkins, Candace is used to making her life everybody else's problem. She's not used to living her own life. Ponder, quitter, 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 quit, quit, quit. She's a quitter. Watkins leaves. Jean Newmaker leaves, and McDaniel takes Watkins' place. Watkins then returns. Watkins then returns and tells McDaniel and St. Clair to take a break. As the two are leaving, Ponder and Watkins discuss their dream homes and a million-dollar property nearby that's being remodeled. Once they're done with the conversation, Watkins says, let's talk to the twerp, and they unwrap... 10-year-old Candace. And at one hour and nine minutes and 53 seconds, Watkins says, oh, there she is, sleeping in her own vomit. But after 70 minutes of the four adults putting so much strenuous pressure on her that they were panting and sweating, the 10-year-old girl was not sleeping. She was unconscious. As the tape is still rolling, Ponder walks over to the girl. Candace, she says. When the girl does not wake up, she calls her name again. Still, no response. As the videotape continues to roll, all the adults in the room begin moving around in a panic as Candace lies blue on the plaid sheet, blood smeared under her nose, covered in her own vomit. Jean and Ponder return to the girl's body, 
and begin performing CPR. Between breaths, Ponder instructs Watkins to call 911, and this is when the tape stops. That's crazy. It's crazy emotional. It's it's like you don't even know what to say. It is. That that could take place. It's 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 really weird too. It's so eerie and shocking because it's like when you when you when I'm hearing you say when you you know you're giving the transcripts it's like it gives me so many like feelings and emotions all yeah. at once. It's like it's like a system overload for me because how could you do this to a child? Yeah. And like yeah, let's make She's things pleading. tighter She's and screaming and, and harder to get out of. You're literally mm-hmm. making it impossible. You're making it a task impossible. Not only are, are these methods wrong, but then let's not have her a way for her to get out. Right. Like that's torture. Like I, they killed her. I understand that groupthink is something that does exist, but how can you listen to a child beg for air? Know that she's know that she's vomited. Know that she's screaming. She's crying. And how do you not instinctually want to help her? Especially Jean Newmaker. You you vowed to take on this child as your own, and to and to protect her right. and to love her. And you did everything opposite of that. Exactly. <sighs> it's pretty hard to hear. Yeah, it's bad. I couldn't imagine. And that's not even seeing it. I haven't even seen the video, but I can, as hard as it was to watch the holding therapy, I cannot imagine this. I really, to be honest with you, I would never want to watch that. I wouldn't either. Within 10 minutes, paramedics arrive at the scene. They are met by McDaniel at the front door. He tells the medics that the girl was left alone for only a few minutes during the rebirthing session. And now she isn't breathing. What a liar. When the two paramedics enter the room, Ponder and Jean are still performing CPR on the girl. The sheet has now been removed from beneath her, so they've already tampered with the scene to make it look like they weren't responsible. But her vomit remains on the girl's shirt and neck, and blood remains beneath her nose. The paramedics assess the situation before them. There is something wrong here. The young girl is blue and cool to the touch implying that she has been unconscious for quite some time. Now on high alert of those around them, the two paramedics attempt to save the life of Candace Newmaker. They cut off her shirt and clean her face, and they begin chest compressions and mouth-to-mouth breathing. There was still no heartbeat. They checked her pupils, and they were fixed, dilated, and red, a sign of asphyxia. For five minutes, the men continued the rigorous work of CPR. They weren't going to give up on this girl. They're probably the only adult in her life that didn't give up on her. And then they felt it. A faint pulse. Candace was breathing again. The girl was loaded on a backboard so she could be transferred to the Flight for Life helicopter that the paramedics had called in for service. If there was a chance she was going to survive, she had to be taken to a children's hospital. Doctors worked tirelessly through the night in the Denver Children's Hospital to keep the young girl alive. However, it was too late for Candace Newmaker. And at 9 a.m. the following day, Dr. Steinmark pronounced the 10-year-old girl brain dead. 
Officially, Candace died from brainstem herniation and cerebral edema brought on by mechanical asphyxiation. But in his notes, the heartbroken and furious doctor writes, she was smothered and restrained during a therapy session. Jean Newmaker returned to Durham, North Carolina. Shortly after, Dr. Steinmark pronounced the death of her 10-year-old adopted daughter. She broke the news to her friends, members of her church, and school officials. Candace had passed away. But the death of the girl was shrouded in mystery. Why had the two gone to Colorado? And just how exactly did the little girl die? No one knew the answers to these questions. It was almost as if no one was able to mourn the loss of Candace because they just had so many questions about what happened. During her memorial service, Candace's entire fourth grade class from Easley Elementary School attended and placed balloons, songs, and poems beneath a large black and white photo of a little girl next to one of her beloved animals. All of those who attended the memorial service heard Reverend David McBriar talk about Candace's life, how playful and lively she was, and how much everyone loved her. All the while, Jean sat in the back of the church, large sunglasses hiding her swollen eyes. But as everyone left and were handed a cream-colored remembrance card with photos of the little girl, they couldn't help but think about what the reverend did not say. What caused the girl's tragic end? As time went on and the casseroles from friends and neighbors stopped pouring in to the large house, now quieter, on Georgia Avenue, was not able to hide the truth from the community in Durham, North Carolina. On May 18th, Watkins, Ponder, St. Clair, and McDaniel were all arrested for causing the death of the 10-year-old girl. After charging the two therapists and their assistants, the media grabbed hold of this story and ran. Soon pictures of Candace were all over newspapers and on television sets. The parents of Eastley Elementary tried as hard as they could to shelter their children from the details of Candace's horrific death. But it was difficult, and discussions had to happen. The community was stunned by the news. Those closest to Jean were shocked. Many made comments to local media that this seemed out of the ordinary for Jean's character, and they couldn't imagine this happening. All four were charged in the death of Candace. All four charged in the death of Candace are going to plead not guilty to the charges of reckless endangerment, reckless child abuse, and murder. In total, 11 doctors that had contact with the newmakers were called to testify, as were four additional experts. One of the psychologists that Jean took Candace to is going to be the only one to break their silence and talk to the media. In an interview, the woman stated that if she knew of Jean's intentions, she would have advised her not to go. She said the girl did have problems, but nothing that you wouldn't expect from a 10-year-old girl who had been moved around foster homes. In my opinion, the woman said, I do not think Jean gave Candace enough time to overcome her problems. She was not the most damaged kid. She could have made it. After hearing the story of what took place from the defendants, district attorneys in Colorado chose to charge Jean Newmaker 
with criminally negligent child abuse, a charge that could possibly carry a life sentence. This led to a plea deal. Jean chose to testify against Watkins and Ponder in order to receive the minimum sentence of the charges, four years in prison. At the end, there would only be one trial, that of the two psychotherapists, Ponder and Watkins. It's, um, St. Clair and McDaniels are also going to do a plea bargain as well. The trial of the two was dramatic. Twice the jurors had to watch the recorded tape of the rebirthing session. The jurors were brought to tears, some having to look away as they could no longer watch the murder of the little girl. Um, they, they watched it twice because they watched it once during the court, the trial, but then they requested to watch a tape a second time while they were deliberating. During the last week of the trial, Colorado Governor Bill Owens signed Candace's law, which banned reenactment of the birth process when it uses restraints that carry a risk of death or physical injury. In the end, Ponder and Watkins were sentenced to 16 years in prison. St. Clair and McDaniel, who pleaded guilty to criminal negligent child abuse, were both given 10 years probation and 1,000 hours of community service in a plea bargain. They had to testify against the psychotherapist they worked for. In a controversial move, Watkins was released on probation in 2008, meaning she only served seven years of her 16-year sentence. The releasing of Ponder, however, the only licensed therapist in the room that day, was kept very quiet. I couldn't find her release date anywhere, but if she did serve her full time, which I'm sure she did not because Watkins was set off on probation, um, the latest she would have been let out of prison would have been 2017. In the final heartbreaking details of the case, five months after Candace's death, law enforcement paid a visit to Angela Elmore. They had questions for her regarding the case. When they knocked on her mold-infested trailer door, she answered, barefoot and still in her nightgown. Luckily, the men had been warned that she most likely that she most likely did not know about what had taken place. When they asked the woman if she was the mother of Candace Newmaker, she said yes, and showed them a picture that she had of the girl on one of her tables. It was a Halloween picture. Angela had pictures up of all of her children. She believed, just as she had when she was young, that they all would eventually be able to come home to their mother. And that would be Candace, Chelsea, and Michael. Since Candace and her two siblings had been taken away from Angela, Angela had three more children. But she didn't want her first three children to think that she'd ever forgotten them. And because of this, pictures of her first three children littered her trailer. The men slowly broke the news to her. There had been an accident in Colorado. A therapy session. Candace was dead. She died in a rebirthing therapy session. She was suffocated. Angela couldn't wrap her mind around any of this. What accident? What rebirthing session? She fell apart. Eventually, she asked to borrow the officer's cell phone to call her mother. 
Minutes later, her mother came running down the small road that led to the trailer. The two women embraced, both sobbing. Her mother's husband, Candace's step-grandfather, the one that had given her her first middle name, was devastated as well. Later in an interview, David Davis, Candace's step-grandfather, will say this. Mary, now that's Angela's mother, and Angela both wanted to be good mothers. They had 100% desire to do this, but they were never taught how to love or how to be loved. It would be like me wanting to go to a hospital and save someone's life. I would have to have someone show me how to do it. Candace was never a bad child. She just suffered from the same thing. She was never taught to love. Heartbreaking. It really is yeah. heartbreaking. And I I just want to say that all those people that were responsible for Candace's death. How I think it... there's a long line of people that were responsible. Well, yes. For the neglect. Like, it's so hard. It's so True. hard to... Everyone, I think, had a part in her death. I get what you're saying. But I'm talking more... No, the people in the room on the yeah, videotape are I mean, animals, All those monsters. people that were responsible yeah. for that whole thing with the sheet, they wouldn't like if they were trapped in a sheet and suffocated and squeezed to death. No, but it's easy to do when you're on the outside. And it's something they've done before, and it's disgusting, and it's obviously it's been banned, and it's been spoken out against. And now, in retrospect, when people look back, they realize it wasn't a great thing to do, Um Everyone has spoken out against it in the therapy community, but it it was like a weird fad thing that yeah, they she was had a casualty to dispel. of a fat, you know. Yeah, I I think I just want to say this because I know you know some people might just you know take this as we were all on one side, you know, which we no, you know, there is only one side in this. Well, there there <laughs> is no no there is, but I just want to say though, coming from Jean, I I, I feel like. She was she desperate. was desperate for this child to love her, and she went to the most extreme means of doing so. Right, and I think that the intentions were somewhat like understandable. Like you know, you, you provide for this new child, you want everything to be perfect, you want all these things to go right. I think she had a vision of what the adoption would be like, and when it wasn't what her vision was, she couldn't cope with that. And that's why she needed the excuses to be made. Right. And I, and I, and I well, I'm not just going to say I understand it. I mean, I, I, I get, like, what she was trying to do, but... It was bad. Ultimately, really bad. Yeah. Um, it's so sad. Yeah. The fact that this took place is just so heartbreaking. It is. And it's, it's, this is a sad one. I think everyone's going to be a little... Uh, Emotional Those heartstrings are going to be pulled a little I bit. I know. But... And we just hope you enjoyed the episode. We just want you to know that we're so glad to be back. And we hope that all of our listeners are going to have an amazing 2019 because this is our first like recorded episode after the new year. And we do want to take this time at the end of this episode to thank everyone for 2018 and what an amazing year it was for us as this like starting podcast to have a following grow and to have people give us great feedback. We love it. And we just want you to know that we promise that we are going to do everything in our power to bring you the best podcast that we can. 
this year, and we're just really excited to bring it to you. Well said, Kay. I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So again, next week, we'll have another episode for you. So it's pretty amazing. Two weekends in a row for you guys. That's pretty great. Um, As always, if you like the podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Another great thing you could do is just word of mouth. Just tell people about us because that's the biggest way podcasts kind of get spread. And we know a lot of you have already done that. So we appreciate that. If you want to leave us a five-star review, that would be amazing too. And if you want to donate on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash couple. All right, guys. See you next weekend. Bye, guys. Bye.